This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Hello, everyone. At Seven Vineyard, we've been doing a little mini-series of talks called Mending the Divides. And today, as a special bonus episode, I am thrilled to have with me my good friend, Dan Maurice. Hello. Who also happens to be the author of this brand new book called Finding the Peacemakers. So today, we're looking forward to hearing a little bit from Dan about his story, how this came about, and about some of the people and inspiring things that he heard uh, in the process. So Dan, why don't you dive straight in? Tell us how on earth this came about. Okay, yeah, thanks Dan. Well, it's um, yeah, I'm honored to be here. I've um, got to know the sort of Seven Vineyard team, especially you, over the last few years, and uh, very loving, very encouraging bunch. So I'm really honored to be uh, doing this with you. Um, and how the book came to be written, a lot of people's journey starts with a slight feeling that something can be fixed or there's something that's not quite right and you want to really address that thing. So for me, it was a sense that some of the stories that we're, we get in Western media and Western culture, I feel like there's a little bit missing, um, particularly in terms of positivity. Some of the stories we read are often quite negative and stories of people of faith, we often hear the most bizarre things and, uh, and some of the negative things, but I feel like for me, I love learning from people and some of the real role models, um, people whose lives just look like Jesus, people who are loving their neighbors, even loving their enemies, and sort of doing that simple stuff well. I feel like I don't read many of those stories in the mainstream media. And I kind of feel like I'm almost jealous of my culture. I want people to experience that, to see lives well lived, to, to see someone and think, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? Ah, oh, like that girl or that guy. That's what I wanted to sort of capture. And so I set about finding some of those stories, meeting some of those people and recording them in this book. Brilliant. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit more um, about some of those people you met. But you haven't always been an author, of course. So tell us a little bit about, about how this happened. Yeah. So I was actually, when I started writing the book, I was a teacher, sixth form and secondary school uh, teacher, geography uh, in the city in St. Mary Redcliffe. I loved that. It was a good job. Great students, great staff I worked with. I love team geography. I was starting to push doors a little bit and pursue some stories. Um, and the one story which really, I think, gripped me, gripped a lot of people, um, was the rescue of the Chilean miners in 2010. So there was a collapse in the San Jose mine and it started as a very typically tragic story, which the, the headlines love, you know, it was a really, um, quite a morbid, quite a gritty sort of feeling that these men are buried alive. They're, probably died. The few remaining ones who may have survived are probably fighting over scraps of food and had that slightly um, dark edge. And then on the 17th day after the collapse, when almost all hope had been given up that they'd find them, there was a little note that they pulled out. The, the drill hit an air pocket and there was banging on the end of a drill and they thought, someone's alive. And they brought the drill back up. I mean, it's 700 meters down, nearly half a mile. Um, so it was a long old journey up and <laughs> clinging to the end of a drill bit was a note saying, we are all well, the 33. And suddenly, just like that, that story, which seems so tragic, became this beautiful story of redemption and rescue and survival. And the, by that point, the whole world was gripped. But it was sort of glimmers within the story of the role the miners' faith had played in their survival and their rescue, which I don't think a lot of people knew how to sort of report on. So water that miraculously became clean when they prayed for it, a breeze that sort of swept up out of thin air and restored one of the miners breathing as he was about to have a heart attack. The way the drill just deviated off course. All of these things were in answer to their prayers. 
and um, the miners were quite happy to share those stories, but I think the press just didn't know how to to report it. We're not used to this sort of stuff. And so they kind of, and they did a good job within the sort of parameters that they, they have. But I was just hungry to know a bit more. So I wrote a letter to one of the miners and said, I'm a geography teacher, I'd love to hear a bit more of your story. Out of the blue, I had a message from Jose Enriquez saying, brother Dan, here's my number, call me when you land. So that was it, I was off. And we met Jose and a few of the other miners had amazing stories about their survival. Partly the miraculous and the sort of the, the wow stories about how they got out, which are in the book. But also for me, there was an element of sort of the harmony within them. There was a, there was a peacemaking element really. And even though they could have turned on one another and a lot of the predictions about what would happen down there, the psychologists preparing the families sort of in the, in the aftermath of the, of the collapse were saying that, you know, people behave quite strangely under desperate circumstances and similar survival stories have ended with blood on the walls. And, uh, but yet when they found them, none of those things were true. They were loving and supporting and praying with one another and even forgiving one another across you know, someone stole the emergency rations on the first day and that became a particularly sore point. Sure. You can imagine when they're on half a teaspoon of tuna a day per man and you think that guy <laughs> had a can on the first day. But actually all those faults were forgiven. There was real comradeship. And I thought if people can learn to forge real friendship and real love and real community under the most extreme of circumstances, then there's something for us to learn. So I started to pursue these stories of peacemakers, people who are reaching out across all sorts of divides and showing genuine love and service and compassion. Mm. And that was the beginning of the book. Amazing. You came back from that journey mm. and you weren't fully satisfied that that was the one story you needed to mm. capture. You then went on further adventures looking mm. for other stories of hope, I guess, in a similar vein. And I got to share in a little part of that adventure with you when yeah. we went to the shores of the Mediterranean and mm. met with people who were fleeing from the Middle East into Europe. It was an incredible uh, experience for me. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about some of those people we met and maybe someone who really kind of uh, caught your attention from that journey? Yeah, essentially the reason why I was drawn to the Middle East was because after the Chilean mine rescue, that's 2010, 2011, just afterwards, it was just literally a few weeks after that, the Arab Spring kicked off and it seemed like a season of real hope, but actually quite quickly there were stories of real conflict and real hardship and uh, refugees flooding, particularly out of Syria, and other countries as well, Libya and Iraq. And I thought with the Chilean miners, even though it was a very traumatic situation, everyone was trying to rescue them. Whereas in the Arab Spring, you had different players on different sides doing different things. And actually, it's one thing to have faith, hope and love in a difficult situation where you know that people are looking after you. But actually, how do you show real love? How do you bring real peace to a situation when people are genuinely trying to hurt you and kill you? Um, that's a different level. That's the real Jesus, love your enemies stuff. And when, on that trip, we met people who were doing exactly that, people who had encountered Jesus often in very surprising ways, in dreams and visions um, and uh, miraculous moments. And they'd started this relationship with Jesus and then decided as they got to know him, actually the way of Jesus is a way of forgiveness, of sacrifice, of love. And they'd end up becoming peacemakers to former enemies. And that had a transformative effect really on, the, on individuals, but the sort of culmination of lots of people doing that had an impact on whole people groups. And one story in particular that really struck me, there was a guy called Kareem 
who had started his, his life had started very tragically when he had been burnt quite horrifically in an, in a, an attack. Someone had thrown petrol on him and set him on fire, and had had survived. He got to hospital and he recovered. Almost had a few scars, but had made a full recovery. And but obviously very traumatized, real hatred for his own people, and he'd fled to Europe. And years later, he actually had a real sort of Damascus Road experience, actually in a church in Qatar uh, where he was working and just found real freedom from the past, real forgiveness for people that hurt him, and a real love for the Arab world, his own people. And he came back to the place where he was staying and actually felt like God had prepared him to be a real peacemaker and a real sort of rescuer to people that were coming into Europe. But this was before the Arab Spring. So he didn't know anything about it. He felt like God had given this vision that there'll be lots of refugees turning up in our country. And everyone thought, that's a bit weird. And then when it happened, he was ready. He knew God had prepared him. And then when we met him, I think the thing that was remarkable, and you said the same, actually, when we heard his story, we thought, wow, there's a guy that's really suffered. But he was such a warm and such a loving, such a radiant and joyful person. It was such a paradox. It was, yeah. And I thought, that's not just a nice story or a, a contrast you can read about. We saw it. We saw a man that was so full of love. It was almost overflowing. He couldn't help but hug you because there was just this love like a fountain within him. And I thought, I want to know, that, that can't just be something he's mustered up or he's tried hard to get. There was a real divine peace within him that overcame his circumstances, that overcame his past and allowed him not just to process his previous hurt, but to transform it into a real desire to help other people that were hurt. And he, had, he was clearly bringing real freedom and real healing and real hope to other people who had suffered. And that was a beautiful thing. Mm, yeah, it was amazing to see. And so you tell his story. Mm. The book also includes stories of people maybe a bit closer to home, maybe yeah. for us here in Bristol, um, some of the kind of role models that have been part of this city and, mm. you know, also part of what you've been involved with in, in the city. So, yeah. so how do we bring it closer to home? Well, exactly that, yeah. I wanted to, to have some stories of people in the West who are doing this sort of stuff, but on our own, in our own city, so we have something to relate to, something we can aspire to. And so I met the Reverend Dave Jewell, former football hooligan, who found faith quite remarkably and ended up becoming a real, um, reaching out to actually former gang members from his sort of hooligan days. An amazing guy, real sort of hero in our city. And he was part of a, when he sort of left his life of violence, he joined what they call a community house in Bristol run by uh, Dave Mitchell and um, and the sort of Mitchell gang, Tina, and there's, I think it's like five kids, and a whole house of like 20 odd people. And he joined that house and sort of became, it was a place where he got real healing and sort of turned his life around. And he became a real pioneer to do the same. He became a football chaplain and a prison chaplain and a, now a Navy chaplain, really reaching out and being a sort of community leader and other sort of tough communities and bringing real healing to people. And we basically, um, I sort of caught this vision. I thought it'd be nice to do something similar. And uh, Emma, my sister Simmons and Chris, her husband, they came down to Bristol and we bought this house together and tried to do something similar. Um, because we really wanted to, these stories we, we read about, I wanted to try and put them into practice. I, I didn't want to be a hypocrite, you know, and just kind of tell the story and sit back. I wanted to kind of give it a go. And so we bought a house in the inner city. Um, we did it up. It was a bit of a journey and we tried to create a sort of, place of sanctuary, a place of prayer, a place where we could invite people in who needed a bit of love, which is all of us at some point, and provide that. Um, and it's been amazing. Um, it's been a lovely journey to walk with Emma and Chris. Um, it's been a privilege to be part of people's lives um, who have come through the house. And so I would, 
I'd recommend it really. It's difficult to know what that'd look like for different people in different um, ages and stages. Um, but if you read those stories and you get a sort of feel for like, I'd like to try this. Particularly here at Seven Vineyard, you can speak to Emma and Chris and ask them what they did and what they'd recommend. Um, but I think that's part of a story which other people could sort of capture and put into practice in the sort of here and now. Mm. Yeah, there's such a variety of stories contained in the book. What's the thread that holds all that together? Yeah, so actually, I didn't want to write a how-to book. The thread that holds it together is faith in Jesus. It's a person, it's a relationship with God. It's not really um, like things you could, like practices. Um, and so all the people from the, the miners of Chile to the Syrian refugees to the former English football hooligans that I interviewed, they're all people of simple faith in Jesus. Not necessarily really religious people, often quite surprising people of faith, but people who have that, they're walking with Jesus and that relationship has given them this peace. I always say peace is not just the absence of conflict, it's the presence of something, a sort of um, a harmony mm. between and within people that overcome circumstances, however hard they are. And it was people's relationship with Jesus that gave them that overcoming peace. And so I wanted to get to know his story in order to understand theirs. So I took the scriptures, I took a little Bible and I went out to the, the place where Jesus' journey started. Um, so as a child in Bethlehem, as, as you know from the story uh, in Matthew, Herod the Great tried to uh, kill Jesus and his, Mary and Joseph took him in the middle of the night and fled to Egypt. So his first earthly memories would have been probably that journey home from Egypt, through desert trails and dirt tracks, dodging wild animals, looking for water, <laughs> relying on the kindness of strangers. And so I thought I wanted to make that journey to try and understand his life and use it as a sort of, as a sort of pilgrimage to, to understand some of his teachings, some of his life, to really step into his world and just like him, I was dodging wild animals and needing him, you know, praying my way out of desert ravines at points and relying on the kindness of strangers. And I felt like in my own faith, I got to know God in a new way. And I found a peace in some difficult situations, walking in his footsteps. Mm. To finish with, um, what would you say to us at Seven Vineyard as we seek to become peacemakers, as we seek to be agents of reconciliation in our city? Mm. What would you say to us as we pursue that? Yeah, well, actually, I, I was preparing as I was preparing for this. I was praying for you guys and I wrote down a few things. I don't want to forget what I said. Um, so I had a couple of things to share about um, about the vineyard. I would say for me, I think there's three particular strengths I've observed in the vineyard as a movement, but also Seven Vineyard, your church and the people I know. I'd say one, you're very loving people. Um, I'd noticed that in the way you... you you care for people in a real way, which I, I find quite inspiring. But also I think you're people that listen well. And so you listen to God. I think the prophetic is really strong. But also you listen to people. Like you listen, you don't, you know, you're not just coming with an agenda. You know how to listen to, learn from, really honour people. Um, and then thirdly, I feel like you're good at scattering into the city. So there's a book by Alan Scott, one of your own, uh, called Scattered Servants, about that very concept of the early church being scattered into the highways and byways of um, the Holy Land. Um, and I feel like you're scattered across the city, actually, um, in different, quite unusual places sometimes. You're in the homes of many refugees who are new to the city. There's people, I remember uh, Claire doing street outreach at one point, like literally in the streets, chatting to people, praying for people. And there's others in, you know, clubs and pubs. There's an adventure group. There are people on climbing walls and <laughs> on the road. And, you know, I think about the things I've seen in Seven Vineyard over 
the years I've known you. You're in all sorts of wonderful places in the city and some surprising places. And I feel like the word I, I had for you um, was a sense that I don't think there's anything, I don't feel like you have to learn a sort of peacemaking. I would say from my experience and what the stories I found in the book is that people, when you're following Jesus, he gives you that peace. It's something within you. It's, um, it's his Holy Spirit within you. It's not something you have to try and do. You know, his presence is a peaceful presence. As individuals and as a church, when you find yourself in different places in the city, you are bringing that peace. Even if you don't necessarily um, know quite what you're doing. And Jesus spoke about this. He said to the disciples in Matthew 10, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Um, and he goes on to say, be on your guard. You'll be handed over to local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Mm. And I hope you won't be flogged in the streets, obviously, but I do feel like you're placed in different places around the city. And actually, in certain moments, God will give you the things to say. And there's a similar um, concept in 2 Corinthians 4. These are the two verses I had for you, Matthew 10 and 2 Corinthians 4. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of a knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Mm. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And I sense both of those things. I feel like God will equip you um, in places in the city to speak, but also that even without trying, his presence is shining out of you like a light. Often people say like an old jar of clay, even in the cracks, that's where the light shines out. So, um, yeah, my word for you is not to worry too much about how to be a peacemaker. I think you have that within you. And as you learn to listen to and surrender to God's voice in your lives, that will naturally come. My real question is, where will you take it? So as much as you're scattered across the city, I feel like there's new places for you to go to bring God's presence and his peace, that real shalom, where you will bring that to certain situations in the city. Maybe revisiting places you've been to before, but I just see individuals and as a church, you placed all over the city in different um, sort of arenas, bringing that peace and that presence into those places and seeing change. Um, so that's my word for you. The encouragement is I think you're very loving. You're good at listening to people and to God and you're scattered throughout the city. And my question is, where will you bring the peace of God in you into the places of the city? Amazing. Dan, thank you so much. That's so encouraging. Uh, and a lovely way to finish. Um, very quickly, how do people stay in touch with you? How do they get hold of the book if they want to? Okay, yeah, so the book is available um, wherever you buy books. It's kind of all over the place. Um, just Google it. Um, but it, I also I wrote the book very much for a secular audience, so it's not particularly religious. The language is very accessible. Um, it's quite, I just tell lots of stories, really. It's not particularly heavy. Um, so I'd love it if people could get the book, but also pass it on to a friend who's not Christian and just say, what do you think about this? Uh, and then also there's a podcast that goes with it uh, that's coming out and lots of stuff on social media. So all of that is at the Luke X project. Um, so if you go to a website, lukex.org, L-U-K-E-X dot O-R-G, uh, or look up the Luke X project on social media, all the stuff that goes with it, you will find there. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Dan, for all that you've shared with us today. And I hope that you've all found that enjoyable and inspiring. We're going to head back to the service so that we can close together in prayer.